All right, well, uh, we are back to hermeneutics, and uh, today we're going to be continuing our look at analyzing the context of the text. Remember last week we talked about the four stages of biblical interpretation? Anybody remember the, what the four stages are? First one, analyzing this, the context, observing what the text says, interpreting what the text means, and applying the text meaning. So that's the, the broad process of interpretation, and, and we're focusing on that very first one, analyzing the context. And we talked last week about gathering resources, study the book's historical circumstances, and then we have these others that we're going to be going through. We did those two last week. This week, today, we're going to start with consider the book's canonical context. Consider the book's canonical context. That is to say, you need to figure out when the book was written relative to the other books of the Bible. Where does this book fall in the historical timeline? Now, this isn't talking about using the rest of Scripture as a lens through which we interpret our book. There are some people who have what they call a canonical hermeneutic, and they use other books of the Bible to interpret one book. That's not what we're talking about here. Nor is this discussing comparing the contents of our book with the rest of divine revelation. That's what we'll do when we're done with the interpretive process. This is merely finding out where does this book occur in the historical timeline and putting it in the timeline. Everybody following me? So if we're studying the letter to the Romans, we want to understand when Paul wrote the book of Romans relative to his other epistles. Did he write Romans before or after, let's say, the book of Ephesians? Did he write it before or after his uh, letter to the Corinthians? Where does it fall relative to those? Uh, Dr. Clausen provides this chart. This is just Paul's epistles. I think he's missing one, but that's my opinion. Some may disagree on the exact dating when you read through, even conservative scholars, the exact dating will, be, will vary. You'll see one person says it was written in 56, someone else says it was written in 57, someone else will say it was written in 58. Don't get caught up too much on the dates. You don't need to sit there and quibble over 57 or 58. The point here is that if you look at that chart, working from your way from the top down, you can see the order in which the books were written. The date is next to them, and then on the left side, you can see what's going on in that time period. So 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are on the second missionary journey. 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans are on the third missionary journey. And then you have the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all written during Paul's first imprisonment. And then you have the fourth missionary journey and the second Roman imprisonment. And you see where the books fall within the history. So if you look at that chart, you can tell that Paul wrote Romans somewhere around the same time that he wrote the book of Galatians at the end of his third missionary journey. Now, the chart's really helpful, right? And you might be thinking, yeah, Frank, but I don't have a cool chart like that at home. Do I just memorize this chart? How do I figure this out? And how do I know the chart is right? How do I understand the context here, the, the canonical context, if I don't have a cool chart like this? Well, just like when we talked about studying historical context, you want to start by just reading through the book. Because the internal evidence of the book is going to be a huge help in determining when the book was written. 
by reading through the book of Romans, you can learn a lot about Paul and his circumstances during the time of his writing. You don't even have to go to an outside resource. You can just read Paul. And I want to show you that. First, you can find out a lot about Paul and his relationship to the Romans. First, Paul had never been to Rome. When he wrote this book, he was still hoping to meet the people in Rome. And he was still trying to get to Rome. How do you know that? Romans 1 verse 10. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Does that sound like to you that he's been trying to get to Rome for a while? If at last I may succeed in coming to you, I've been trying to get there for a long time, and every time I try to go to you guys, God sets up another barrier and I end up going somewhere else. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. I've been trying to get to you. It's not that I don't love you and I don't like you. I just can't get there. Every time I try, I get stopped. Why does Paul want to go to Rome so much? Because this is a church that was founded, we don't know exactly who founded it, but it wasn't founded by an apostle. It was likely founded by people who were converted in another place and moved to Rome, or they were Romans who left there, got converted, and came back. They went out visiting somewhere, and they came back converted, and they just started a church. How do we know that? Because Paul, at the end of the book of Romans, says these people have never had uh, the gospel preached to them. Romans 15, verse 20, and, and in this way I make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. He wants to go to Rome because no apostle had ever been to Rome and preached the gospel. Now, if any of you are former Roman Catholics, that might be a shock to you, because the Roman Catholic Church says, who founded the church in Rome? Peter. And Paul here is writing to the Romans and says, you've never had an apostolic visit at all. And he writes to the Romans, he never once even mentions Peter. So, no, Peter did not found the church in Rome. And he wasn't the first pope either. I digress, I'm sorry. But getting to Rome was a major part of Paul's ministry. It was a goal for his ministry. He had been to all the rest of Asia Minor, looking, planting churches, preaching, teaching. And now he had finished all of those other areas, and he had nowhere else to go. His last stop was going to be Rome and then Spain. But the rest of Asia Minor was taken care of. Uh, Romans 15, verse 23. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, all my work here is done. I have nothing else to do. I have no more churches to plant. Now I just want to fulfill this desire of my heart. Let me come to you in Rome. You're correct, yes. He wants to pass through Rome, and we're going to talk about why he wants to pass through Rome. He's going to, he wants to get to Rome, and by way of Rome, he wants to get to Spain. So Paul, by the time of this writing, Paul is looking at getting to Rome, but he's got a pit stop to make. Anybody know where he has to go before he goes to Rome? This is a hard Bible question. He has to go back to Jerusalem. Why does he need to go back to Jerusalem? Yes. Remember Agabus in Acts 11 had this offering that they were collecting for the church in Jerusalem. 
And Paul was the guy that was designated to get up and go and make this collection and bring this money to the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul has been going around on his third missionary journey, collecting the funds. And now at the end of his missionary journey, he needs to get back to Jerusalem so he can deliver those funds to them. And by the time he writes the book of Romans, he hasn't delivered this money. He still has the money with him. Romans 15, verse 26 and 27. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to share with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Paul's got the money. He's got the collection. Macedonia was very uh, gracious. I think in the book of Philippians, he talks about their generosity to the church in Jerusalem. And once that collection is complete, Paul wants to go to Jerusalem and deliver the money, and then from Jerusalem, he wants to go to Rome. Romans 15, verse 28, Therefore, when I have finished this, and I have put my seal on the fruit of theirs, I will go by way of you to Spain. Somebody had said it was just going to be a pit stop. His goal was to get to Spain. He wanted to preach the gospel in Spain, which ultimately he would do, we believe, on his fourth missionary journey. So, do we have biblical evidence of Paul delivering the money to Jerusalem? We're just going into the text to find biblical evidence on the setting and when is this occurring so we can put the book in its proper place on the historical timeline. Do we have biblical evidence on when Paul took the offering to Jerusalem? Answer, yes. Uh, the book of Acts records three missionary journeys and they're recorded in chronological order. The third missionary journey starts in Acts 18, and that journey ends in Acts 21, where Paul goes to Jerusalem and is arrested. And when he is standing trial, he stands trial before a lot of people, but when he stands trial before the governor Felix, he mentions the offering, the offering for Jerusalem. Acts 24, verse 17, "'Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings.'" He tells Felix, look, I came back to Jerusalem not to cause a problem, not to be, you know, a, an upstart. I came back to Jerusalem so I could present this offering. That means Paul must have written the book of Romans before the events in Acts 21. In Acts 21, he arrives in Jerusalem to offer, make the offering. The book of Romans says nothing about delivering it already. The book of Romans sounds like he still has the offering with him. Everybody follow that? Okay. There's also internal evidence that Paul was in Corinth at the time of his writing. Corinth was the final city on the third missionary journey. I don't know how well you guys can see that in the back. But his journey starts in the upper, in the middle right side and goes up to the left, down. He gets to Corinth. Corinth is down on the bottom left of the red line. And then he works his way back up and goes down to Jerusalem, and it ends in Jerusalem. And the evidence in Romans says he was in Corinth, middle left there, when he wrote the book of Romans. He had planned to leave from Corinth and sail to Jerusalem, and just go straight from the left and go straight down to the bottom, right? That was his plan. But something happened in Corinth that kept him from doing it. Anybody remember what happened in Corinth? There was something else that happened here on, at the end of his third missionary journey in Acts 20. There was an uprising in Corinth. 
and they tried to kill him. And so instead of running to the port, Paul decides, I'm going to go north, and he goes north back up to Philippi in Macedon. But before he leaves, he sends one of his friends to Rome, someone named Phoebe. Romans 16, verse 1, 1 and 2. Now I commend to you, that would be, I commend to you Romans, our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Kincre, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Paul's going to send Phoebe to Rome. He's going to go north to Macedon, and she's going to go to Rome and likely carry this letter back to the Romans. She was a member of a church that was in the port city. Corinth sits about there. She was a member of the church in that port city. He hands her the letter. She gets on a boat. She goes to Rome with a letter to the Romans. Paul goes north and heads to Macedon. Paul arrives in Macedon, and from Macedon, he continues to travel back west, back east again, excuse me. He goes to Troas and Miletus, and he travels down, and he makes it back to Jerusalem. Probably by the time he gets back to Jerusalem, Phoebe has arrived in Rome with his letter to the Romans. When you put all this together, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans at the end of his third missionary journey. He wrote it from Corinth. And that would date the book, depending on what conservative scholar you read, somewhere between 56 to 58 AD. Okay, now don't get caught up in the years again, okay? Scholars will debate it. I think if you're somewhere in that range, you're fine. The only thing you don't want to do is have a scholar who tells you this book was written in like 80 AD. Why don't you want the book of Romans written in 80 AD? Paul's dead. He couldn't have written it. So if you find one of those, get rid of it. But with this information, we can say quite a bit about this book. We can say that this book was written before his first Roman imprisonment, which means it was written before Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Because in the book of Romans, he has never been to Rome, which means he's never been imprisoned in Rome. And all four of those books were written in Rome. It was also written before the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. Because those were written after his first Roman imprisonment. 2 Timothy was actually written in his last imprisonment. But it was written after the letters to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians. Why is all of that important as you study the book of Romans? Why do you need to understand that? Think about some of the historical events that are described in the prison epistles or in the, the pastoral epistles that he doesn't know about yet that you do. When Paul is writing the book, the letter to the Romans, he has no idea that he's going to get to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, spend two years in jail, and then be shipped on a very dangerous voyage to Rome. He's going to get an all-expense-paid trip to Rome. The very thing he wants, he's going to get it, just not in the way that he was expecting it. Why is that important? Because you cannot read those historical details into the book of Romans. Because those are not details that Paul interwove with his text. 
they play no bearing on his text because he has no knowledge of them. From his perspective, they haven't happened yet. And so we cannot use them to interpret the passage. All right. Yeah, but that's really daunting. I mean, I'm supposed to go through and read through the book and find all that information by myself and piece it all together. I'm going to get this wrong. How do I do that? Well, reading through the book several times is a good place to start. But after you do that and you piece some of those details together, this is where you go back to those resources we talked about last week. And you use good resources to help you. And I'm not gonna, we're not going to have a whole other section on resources today. We did that last week. But I do want to remind you of one. This is Edmund Hebert's New Testament survey. If you see it in the bookstore, it's well worth your time. It's a survey of the entire New Testament, and he goes through and he lays out all of this information for every single book of the New Testament. And Edmund Hebert is one of those guys that's kind of like MacArthur. Even if you disagree with him, it's okay. He's not going to lead you off in some liberal craziness. So what you do is you go get Hebert's book, and you read through the book on your whatever book you're studying, and you look at what passages he gives, and then you open your Bible, and you read those passages, and you study along with them. And your goal is not just to take whatever Hebert says. Your goal is to study it out enough to where you can say, I either agree or I disagree with them. But more than that, so you can say, I agree with them, and here's why. Or I disagree, and here's why, and you can point back to the biblical text and say why you disagree. Any questions so far? Yes, sir. Yes, it would be helpful when you're talking about doctrine. Uh, a lot of what we know about the structure of the church is, comes up in the pastoral epistles. Um, as far as the gifts, tongues is only mentioned in 1 Corinthians by Paul. It's not mentioned anywhere else, so it's a little harder there. But yes, you are correct. It would be helpful in, in, in theology and doctrine. Any other questions? We were talking about analyzing context. We just looked at consider the book's canonical context. The fourth step. Discover the book's central purpose. Discover the book's central purpose. Here we're trying to decide and determine what made this author sit down and pin this book. Why did he write what he wrote? What was his purpose in writing? Is there a question that he was answering? Maybe the people that he was writing to had a, a looming question, and the book is trying to answer that one main question. Or maybe there's a problem, like a problem in a church, like the issue of gifts and how people use the gifts. Is he trying to address one main problem? Uh, Walter Kaiser said, it should be possible to identify the overall purpose and plan of the book. The parts should add up to the total work. This is why we don't do um, individual verses at one time. Pick this verse, pick that verse, pick this verse, because those verses all fit within the context, and they all contribute to his purpose in writing. And if you don't understand his purpose in writing, you will not get, come to the right conclusion on the text. Now, sometimes when he writes, when they write, he makes it real simple for you. You just have to read the book, and he'll tell you what his purpose is. Very clear purpose statements. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, the end of the matter. All that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. That's the whole point of the book. After all the things he went through, all the things he tried, 
He said, everything else is vanity. Everything else is just hot air. Here's what you need to know. Fear God, keep his commandments. In the New Testament, the Gospel of John has a very clear purpose statement. John 20, verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Very clear statement on what his purpose is in the book. You don't have to guess. And so when you go into the Gospel of John, you want to look at the Gospel of John, and you want to say, how does my passage contribute to that purpose. So that way you understand it within its proper context. How does this passage fit? All right, well, that's a very clear one. He tells me what the purpose statement is. What do you do when he doesn't give you a clear purpose statement? How do you find the purpose? Walter Kaiser provides three tips for finding the purpose statement. Three tips, okay? First one, Look at the exhortations. Exhortations are encouragements. When he's encouraging you or maybe even commanding you to do something. He's encouraging you to take an action. He's encouraging you to believe something. Uh, Walter Kaiser. Study the parenthetical sections, the exhortations, particularly of the New Testament epistles, in order to determine what applications the author himself has made of the factual and doctrinal positions of the text. Usually an author's exhortations will flow out of his special purpose for writing the book. Focus in on the parts of the text where he's encouraging his readers to believe or to do something. Because that's really his main emphasis. And when you find that consistently throughout the book, that'll point to your main purpose in writing the book. I want to show you this. Grab your Bibles. Go over to the book of Hebrews. I'm, I figure we're talking about Bible study. We might as well open the Bible and look at it. I'm going to leave that on the screen. That's why I want you to open your Bibles and see it in the Bible so you can come back to that tip and understand what we're looking at as we do this. If you read through the book of Hebrews, you will notice that the writer, who I think is Paul, but the writer continually goes back and says the same little phrase over and over and over again, it's the phrase, let us. Let us do this. Let us do that. It actually occurs in 12 different verses throughout the book. We're only going to look at a couple of them. Turn over uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. The exhortation here to fear is another way of saying, let us be careful. Let us be diligent that we don't fall short of entering into his rest, entering into salvation, that we don't fall short of salvation. He's concerned about his readers here in verse 1 falling away. His readers are professing believers. And in verse 1, he says, we need to be very careful that we don't fall away. Verse 11, same chapter. Hebrews 4, verse 11, therefore let us, there's that same phrase again, to be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. Let us be diligent. Let us exert every bit of effort to take every pain possible to make sure that we are on the path of salvation, that we are actually going to enter into heaven. And when he says, fall into the same example of disobedience, if you flip back Hebrews 3, verse 12, he's referring to a specific 
example of disobedience. Hebrews 3.12, see to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Don't fall away. Don't have unbelief in your heart. Do everything you need to do to make sure that you truly believe and that you hold on to Christ. Don't turn away from Christ. Back to Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. You might say, take hold of it, grip it tighter, squeeze it for all it's worth. Don't let go of your confession. What confession? Your confession, Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Son of God. Your confession that Jesus is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's offered the final sacrifice for sin. It's a sacrifice the Levitical system could not offer. Hold on to your confession of Christ. Don't let go of it. At the end of that chapter, I'm not going to read these verses. If you want to look at them, 14 to 16, they're encouraged by this same high priest to draw near to the throne of grace to draw near to God himself, the very thing the Levitical system would not allow you to do. Who could go into the tabernacle in the, in, when you go through like Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy? Who could go into the tabernacle? The high priest. Could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies? One time a year. Get in there, do what you got to do, and get out. And if you do anything different, you're going to die. See Leviticus 10 for an example. End of Hebrews 4, he turns to them and says, you can draw near to God anytime you want. You can stay there as long as you want because of this great high priest. Don't let go of your confession. These are professing believers. These are people who claim to be Christians. And now it seems, based on the arguments he's making, it seems like these believers, these professing Christians, are thinking about or considering leaving their confession of faith. Go over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verse 23, he makes it very clear. Hebrews 10, verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Don't give up. Don't turn away. Hold fast your confession. You see how these exhortations here in Hebrews helps us understand the reason for his writing? These exhortations are very helpful for determining the purpose of his writing because he's going to exhort them to do the very thing he's writing for. Let's go to the second tip. Consider, in, consider included details and arrangement. Consider included details and arrangement. The author put certain things in his book for a reason. He put those things in that book so that he could make the point that he wants to make. And he arranged those details in a specific order to make the point that he wants. And we need to pay attention to how he does that. Uh, Walter Kaiser, as a clue to the writer's overall purpose in collecting and editing history or narrative, observe what details he selected for inclusion and how he arranged them. And I wanted to show you this. Go over to Hebrews 1. We'll just stick with the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1. And I want you to just skim over the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. What do you notice? You shouldn't have to read it. If you have a good translation, it should be pretty obvious. What do you notice? 
whole bunch of Old Testament in Hebrews 1. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. What do you notice there? Same thing. Whole bunch of Old Testament. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. What do you notice there? Same thing, right? Old Testament everywhere. The Old Testament is actually a major theme of the book of Hebrews. The author is writing to people he assumes know the Old Testament. Who does it sound like he's writing to? Jews. People who have been converted who were Jewish and now they've been converted. There's nothing you can find when you read through the book of Hebrews. And it's a constant comparison. It's a comparison to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's all the way through the book of Hebrews. This is better than this. This is better than this. It's repeated over and over and over. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. I want to show you this. Hebrews chapter 1. He says, Jesus is better than angels. Hebrews 1 verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is better. He's superior to all the angels. And not only is Jesus better than the angels, but they have a better hope. A better hope that's not found in the Mosaic Law. They have a hope that's outside of the Mosaic Law. Turn over to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, verse 19. They have a better hope. Hebrews 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The law made nothing perfect. You could never be perfected going through the sacrificial system. You can kill a million goats and a million bulls and you still wouldn't be perfect in the eyes of God. That's been set aside for something better. Hebrews 7 again, verse 22, there is a better covenant. Verse 22, so much more Jesus also became the guarantee of a better covenant. A covenant that is better than the Mosaic covenant. A covenant that is better than all the laws and the rituals and the rules of the Mosaic law. Go over to chapter 8, verse 6. But now he, speaking of Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Do you remember the promises of the Mosaic covenant? Anybody remember those? Not all of them by detail. Were you promised spiritual blessing just for believing? How did you get your blessing? You obey. And to the extent that you obey and you remain faithful, God will bless you. To the extent that you disobey, God will punish you. Writer Hebrew says, you don't want to go back to that. The new covenant has better promises. You become a believer, you come to Christ with faith, and you inherit all the spiritual blessings of heaven. Not based on your ability to obey, but based on who Christ is. And not only does it have better promises, it's a better covenant, it has a better high priest, it has a better sacrifice than the Levitical system. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. We're going to look at verse 23. Therefore it was necessary... For the copies of the things in heavens, in the heavens, to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The blood of a goat or a bull is not enough to purify you for heaven. Jump down to Hebrews 10, verse 1. 
For the law, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. His argument here is, look, the reason the priest has to go in there every single year and offer another sacrifice is because last year's sacrifice wasn't good enough. It didn't actually purify you. And so the priest has to go back over and over and over and over doing the same sacrifices year after year because it can never perfect. It can never make you perfect. And the writer of the Hebrews says, you have a better sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that can actually perfect you. Hebrews 10, verse 11. We're going to read 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He did in one offering what a million goats and bulls would never be able to accomplish. And he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Every sin of the elect was paid for right then and there. It's obvious he's talking to Jews who have been converted or professing their faith in Christ, and now they're thinking about going back to the Levitical system and going back to those old sacrifices and going back to that priesthood. And his argument is they are giving up a better covenant with a better priest, with a better sacrifice, with better promises for a covenant that is old, obsolete, and fading away. And he says to them, hold fast your confession. By the way, if you think I made that last part up, that it's old, obsolete, and passing away, Hebrews 8, verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear, going away. It's talking about the Mosaic covenant. It's a system and a covenant that cannot purify you. Are you starting to understand the purpose of the book of Hebrews? Right. Yeah, he was saying the only way you can do this is by reading the book and studying the book. And if you don't read the book, if you don't spend time in the book, you can't get this information because study Bibles are not going to give it to you. I heard someone say this about John MacArthur. He said, you know, when John MacArthur preaches, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, you know one thing about it. He's been in the text. He knows that book usually because he's read that book like 30 times before he preaches through it. All we've done here is just read the book and pay attention to what the author is including. And notice what the author is saying. He included all these Old Testament references, and he made that comparison of what is better in order to help his readers understand his main point. Third tip, examine the outline. Examine the outline. Uh, Walter Kaiser when no other clues are available, the interpreter must work out his own statement of the author's purpose. The interpreter will begin by studying how the topic sentences of individual paragraphs work together to explicate the theme of a given section. How those sentences tell us what the section is about. Then he will proceed to study the themes of all the sections and to evaluate the connections between and within sections 
Only when this has been completed will the interpreter experience any kind of confidence in stating what the author's implied theme is. Let me say it another way. Study the outline of the book and follow the flow of the author's argument all the way through the book. That's what he's saying here. Now, there are a lot of different ways you can outline a book. And so when you go and you read commentaries or you look at surveys, you will find everyone has their own outline. Okay, they see a break somewhere where other people don't. But the best way to do this is just to find a basic outline. Uh, you go into Edmund Hebert's book, and his outlines are like three pages long. They're very detailed. You want just a basic, simple outline. So if we stick with the book of Hebrews, let me show you an outline done by William Hendrickson. Chapter 1, 1 through 4 is the introduction. Chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through 2.18 is Jesus is superior to angels. 3.1 through 4.13, Jesus is greater than Moses. 4.14 through 7.28, Jesus is the great high priest. 8.1 through 10.18, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And 10.19 through 12.29, Jesus' work is applied to the believer. And then chapter 13 is the conclusion. Does that sound awful familiar to you? Some of those points ought to ring some bells from what we just looked at. Notice the theme of having a, something better is kind of demonstrated in the outline. Jesus is superior than angels. That's his first point. We saw that in Hebrews 1.4. Jesus is superior, better than Moses. We saw that in Hebrews 7.19. Jesus is the great high priest, better than the Levitical priest. That's all of chapter 7. Jesus mediates a new, a better covenant. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 6. Generally, I would give it a thumbs up. He didn't complete his commentary. Uh, another guy start. Well, I'm just telling for everyone else. He didn't complete his commentary. Another guy, he died, and then another guy named Simon Kistemaker took over. There are things we would not agree with him on, but generally, he's a decent commentator. Generally, I think he's more Presbyterian slash covenant theology than we are. But in general, yeah. From this, you can see an argument being made. And the argument being made is you have something better in Christ than you did in the Old, old Covenant. Don't turn away from that. Now, if you've gone through and you've done all this in the book, by this point, you should have a pretty good idea what this book is about when you go through and do this study. And you should be able to write out a basic purpose statement. Now, I would call this a Monday morning statement. Monday morning is you just started your study, and so the, your statement is going to be adjusted over time, but you want to make this as simple as you can. The purpose of this book is, and if you can't say it in one simple sentence, the purpose of this book is to warn them against apostasy. Something simple. If you can't say it there, then you're not ready to move on. You need to study some more. Dr. Brad Clausen. Ultimately, the reader who thinks he knows the purpose of the book but cannot state it in his own words clearly is most likely mistaken. A reader who has successfully understood the book's central argument will be able to state it in a concise statement. The purpose of this book is... And you can use some resources for this. I just showed you William Hendrickson's commentary, the outline. Most commentaries will have an introduction in the front, and a lot of them will include a, an outline of the book. And almost without exception, they all discuss the purpose of the book in the introduction. 
And so once you do your study and you've come up to a basic purpose statement, you can go check yourself with other commentators. So if you're in the New Testament, go pull out MacArthur's commentary. See if you line up with what he said. You should be pretty close. And if the first time you do it, you're a little off, it's okay. That's called learning. Go study his arguments, look at what he says, and figure out where you, how you're off. Or maybe you, you got a bad commentary and they said something wrong. All right, questions on this step. Have I lost anybody? You guys are all with me? Okay. We're looking at the six steps to analyzing context. We just talked about discover the book's central purpose. Next one, determine the book's general structure. That's another way to say create your own working outline of the text. Create your own working outline. And just like when we talked about creating your own purpose statement, it's something short and simple. We want this outline to be something simple. You're not ready to do a full detailed outline yet. And this step may end up morphing with the previous step that we just talked about, and they may end up kind of melding together. That's okay. But I want to talk to you a little bit about how you can start making your own outline. Making your own outline is a good way to help you understand kind of the macro view of the book. It lets you take a a 30,000-foot flyover and see the whole argument at once. And it needs to cover the main sections of your book. Um, Let me show you. Dr. Clawson provides an outline. He's actually got this in a cool little chart. This is his outline of the book of Galatians. And he divides the book into three basic sections. First section is over on the left side. Justification by faith alone defended personally. That's chapters 1 and 2. Justification by faith alone defended theologically. That's chapters 3 and 4 right in the middle. And justification by faith alone defended practically. That's chapters 5 and 6. And notice at the bottom, he's got the foundation, the purpose of Galatians. And he's got a very short, simple purpose statement to defend the gospel of justification by faith alone. And his outline helps you understand how he makes that argument of defending justification by faith alone. And every section relates back to that purpose statement. All right. But again... I don't have the cool chart for my book. How do I get this cool little outline like this? How do I build an outline? The easiest way to do this is you're looking for the main sections. And the way you find sections in a book is you just look for the change in focus. If I can put it in movie terms. The camera was focusing on this, and the camera shifts over and is now focusing on this. The author was talking about this location, and now he's talking about that location. Or in Galatians, if you grab your Bibles again, Galatians 1. I want to show you a transition and how a focus shifts, and it actually shifts right where he has a division break. Galatians 1 and 2, I want to show you how Paul is including a whole bunch of autobiographical information. Notice that first section, he says it's justification by faith alone defended personally. And in chapters 1 and 2, there's a whole bunch of information here about Paul. And Paul's using his own life to describe and to defend justification by faith. Uh, Galatians 1, verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. I'm not preaching what I'm preaching to make you happy with me. I'm preaching it because I am a slave of Christ. Galatians 1, verse 11, For I make known to you, brothers that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
When I come and say you are saved by faith alone, that's not something I've made up. That comes directly from Christ. It came from a direct revelation from God himself. Galatians 1 verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. I was in Arabia. I had a personal lesson from Christ for three years. And when I came back, I went and I submitted myself to the other apostles and I spent 15 days with Peter. Galatians 2, verses 1 and 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And I went up because of a revelation and I laid out to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, lest somehow I might be running or had run in vain. Spent 14 years preaching the gospel. He went back to Jerusalem and he went and told the other apostles what he's preaching just to make sure he's not off his tracks. It just says something about apostolic humility there. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is talking about the confrontation he had with Peter, verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before everyone, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Peter's telling Gentiles they have to live like Jews. But he's not living like a Jew. He's living under justification by faith alone. And he's telling Gentiles, you have to live like a Jew. And so Paul confronts him. Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You see, all those details about his life were all intended to point to the fact that Paul believed in justification by faith. And he got that revelation from Jesus. He took that revelation to the other apostles. They affirmed that. And he even confronted the head apostle, the most prominent apostle, Peter, based on that. And he ends the chapter by saying, I live not by works, I live by faith. That's where my righteousness comes from. Do you see how he's defending justification by faith alone personally? Now check out chapter 3, verse 1. Notice the shift in focus. Chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Just a side note, if you do any, any, wow, if you do any interactions with Roman Catholics, they love to point to this and say, he's talking about a crucifix here. No, he's not talking about a crucifix. He's talking about his preaching. Christ was portrayed as crucified in his preaching. But notice the shift here. He went from talking about I to talking about who? You. The Galatians. He's no longer in focus. The camera has now shifted, and he's transitioned to talking about the Galatians themselves. Jump down to chapter 3, verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things for nothing, if indeed it was for nothing? Now he's talking about the Galatians themselves. And if you look back at Dr. Clausen's outline, in between chapters 2 and 3, you have the break. And now he's defending justification, not personally. Now he's defending it through theology. 
theologically. And so chapter 3, he transitions to talking about the Galatians, but the content of chapters 3 and 4 are all theological arguments, arguments made from theology. Let me just show you. Chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so now that... So know that those who are of faith, these are sons of Abraham. No one is justified by works of the law. You are justified by faith. Chapter 3, verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. And he even discusses the Abrahamic covenant and says those who are in faith, those who have faith, are the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15. Brothers, I speak in human terms, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say in two seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Those who are in Christ are the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 18. For if the inheritance is by law, it is no longer by promise, but God has granted it to Abraham through promise. It's granted to you by a promise. God has promised to give you something, and you're going to receive it because he made the promise, not because you worked really hard for it. Chapter 3, verse 27. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs to the promise. Heirs to the promise made to Abraham. I think you get the point. That's all theological argumentation. And you find that by just noticing the shift and the change in his focus. There's a couple of other places you can look for a change or a shift. Look for a change in geography. In the gospel accounts, if you just read through, like go home today, read through the gospel of Mark, and just notice every time it changes geography, he changes location, you'll have a far better understanding of the book of Mark than you've ever had before. A change in time or chronology, if it moves to a different time period, this would be really helpful in the prophetic books, but it's really hard there. Um, a change in logical focus. In Paul's epistles, when he changes and shifts his argument and he starts talking about something new, look at the book of 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the Lord's table, and then he shifts, and now he's talking about the spiritual gifts. Any questions? That was a lot. No? All right. Well, it's 10 o'clock. Let me pray, and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, this ability to come together, to study your word, to learn what you have revealed to us. We do ask that you would help us to be better uh, students of the Word, that you would help us to analyze the context, to understand the context, and, and um, apply it correctly. Do be with us this morning as we come to you and worship, that our worship would be pleasing and glorifying to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.